<laughs> Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 this morning. We're going to need to move along because it's my full intention to finish chapter 4 with you this morning. And I know that that, that um, you don't think that's possible, but it is possible. All things are possible with Christ. So open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew 4. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 25 and finishing out this chapter. You know, as I was thinking, praying, reading this week, and specifically with regard to Matthew chapter 4 and these verses, the thought occurred to me that basically what Matthew has given to us here is something very much like a resume. Much like a resume. You know, I can remember years ago as a manager and having to fill certain job openings and you would solicit resumes and they would come flooding in. And those resumes, the purpose of gathering those resumes, of course, was to to try to determine at least at some level a person's suitability for a particular job opening. And so their resume would, would contain information in a very condensed and compressed form that, that spoke of their work history, their educational background, their experiences, all the things that you would need to know at least to sort out the stack and figure out who you want to bring in for actual interviews to see whether they're the right person to fill the job. And we know that resumes are, are they're necessarily concise and, and abbreviated and short, aren't they? They take uh, what could be months or even years worth of a person's life, and they compress it down into just a few very short statements. And that's essentially what Matthew has done for us here in verses 12 through 25 of the fourth chapter of his gospel. And that is to take a a rather lengthy section of the life of Jesus and compress it down into a few concise, short, abbreviated type statements. According to most commentators, the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ lasted about three and a half years. About three and a half years of public ministry. The first year of that public ministry was spent in and around Judea, Jerusalem and Judea in the south. And that portion of his public life, his public ministry, is is covered for us, is narrated for us, only in the Gospel of John, and that in a very abbreviated form. Really, the first three chapters of John's Gospel speak to that first year in the life of Christ. The next 18 months after that first year, Jesus spends ministering in and around Galilee in the north, in and around Galilee. And he does it in a series of three evangelistic campaigns. So there are three basic evangelistic campaigns that comprise the 18 months of what is commonly known as this great Galilean ministry. After the close, or perhaps I should say collapse, of the great Galilean ministry, Jesus then, in the remaining months, makes three more trips to Jerusalem. They're very short trips, but he, he goes back to Jerusalem three more times. In between each of those trips, he is wandering around, and if I can say it this way, he's basically staying one step ahead of the hangman. And he does that until the timing is correct 
for him to enter into the city along with the, with the pilgrims coming to, to, to um, participate in the Passover feast and celebration in what we know as his triumphal entry and, of course, the final week of his life, which comprises the majority of the printed material of all four of our gospel accounts. So necessarily, the three and a half years before that is very brief. It's very concise. There are just a little bits of snippets along the way to give us an idea of what he did during those first three and a half years because the main focus is upon the last week. That's the way the Gospels are put together. Matthew gives us here in this section of his Gospel a narration, a brief narration of the first of the three great evangelistic campaigns in and around Galilee. So this is the first of the Galilean campaigns narrated for us here, chapters, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. And he gives it to us here as really a way to bridge the book from his baptism and temptation, right? Baptism at the end of chapter 3, his temptation at the beginning of chapter 4, and then into what he's really after, and that is chapters 5, 6, and 7, which comprise what? The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. So he needs to get from the temptation to the Sermon on the Mount. He needs to account for the multitudes, chapter 5, verse 1, that are there for this great Sermon on the Mount, and he does it through an abbreviated recounting of the first of the three great evangelistic campaigns in and around Galilee. So that's the background, that's the setting for the text this morning. As we look at it together, what we'll see are four facets. Four facets of Messiah's resume, if I can say it that way. Four facets of Messiah's resume so that we might understand his early popularity in preparation for the Sermon on the Mount. Ready? Facet number one, his movement. His movement. His movement fulfilled Scripture. His movement fulfilled Scripture. Take a look at the text with me. Now, now when he heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Very simple statement of movement. When he, that is Jesus, heard that John, that is John the Baptist, had been taken into custody, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. Why? Why did Jesus withdraw from Judea? Why did he leave the southern part of the nation where the capital city of Jerusalem is located? Why did he go north to Galilee? Well, there are a number of reasons, a number of reasons that would send him north. For example, Jesus had, during his first year, he had cleansed the temple. Do you remember that? John's gospel narrates that in John chapter 2, that he had cleansed the temple. In that cleansing of the temple, he had put himself in direct and open confrontation with the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the, the leadership of the nation of Israel. They didn't really like it that he had come in and upset the apple cart, as it were, of their temple uh, service. And so he has already created enemies for himself there in the capital city. Beyond that, the very rejection of the, of the scribes and the Pharisees to John the Baptist call to be, to be baptized sets the scene for Jesus that, that he, as the, the one John had said was coming, is now in opposition as well. For 
just be reminded of this over in chapter 3, verse 7. Chapter 3, Matthew's Gospel, verse 7. You remember, John the, the, the baptizer says, when, many, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That did not make John popular with the leadership of the nation of Israel. That's not the way to to win friends and influence people. And so that kind of message by the forerunner that is the herald of the king sets the king himself up in opposition to the leadership. So he has cleansed the temple, driven out the money changers, and his, his forerunner, his, his PR man who's out front setting the stage for him has created this controversy with the scribes and the Pharisees. And so it's not really a great time for Jesus to be in and around Jerusalem and Judea. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that. John the Baptist has been arrested. You see it in verse 12. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew. That was the event that that triggered it for Christ to say, I need to move out. I need to get out of Dodge. I need to go north. And so it is the arrest of John the Baptist by Herod Antipas. Now Matthew narrates that for us later, chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. We won't look there. We'll get there eventually. But John the Baptist is arrested by the the Roman political authority, Herod Antipas. He is arrested by him. Why? Well, there are probably several reasons. Certainly, John's bold preaching where he he criticized the the immoral lifestyle of the king doesn't make you very popular and and was, was definitely an event that got him arrested. But I think it's more than that. I think it's more than he just spoke out boldly against the immorality of the political leadership. I think also behind this lies John's wild popularity. John is baptizing in the Jordan River not far from the capital city of Jerusalem. And it says that the the multitudes are going out to him to be baptized. Now the Romans, if if there were anything that the Romans didn't like, it was insurrection. They could tolerate most things except insurrection. And so this, this prophet of God who is, who is speaking about a kingdom to come, and in fact a kingdom that is close at hand, and the nation is flooding out to him to be baptized, creates insecurity on the part of the Roman political system. And so they need to resolve this issue, and Herod Antipas he decides to resolve it by taking and arresting this prophet. He arrests him. The significant thing, I think, along with this as well, is the fact that the Jewish leadership were happy to have this happen. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the leadership of the nation, they did not stand up to Herod and say, don't arrest this man. They were very happy, in fact, I would suggest, complicit in his arrest and removal because he was a threat to their power base as well. So John the Baptist is arrested. But why Galilee? Verse 12 again. Why Galilee? He heard that John had been taken into custody, that John had been arrested. He withdrew into Galilee. Why Galilee? Herod Antipas ruled Galilee as well as Judea. 
So it's not like he was moving outside of the political boundaries or beyond the, the, the reach of the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas because Galilee falls in Antipas's reign and rule. So why go to Galilee? Why Galilee? Well, knowing something about Galilee actually, I think, begins to unlock the answer to this question. Galilee geographically lies in the northern part of the nation. It is in the north, and it is separated from the south, separated from Judea and Jerusalem by the land of Samaria, by the land of Samaria. And the Jews were loath to, to pass through the land of Samaria. So there was a, a buffer state, as it were, between Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. The buffer state is the, the land of Samaria that the Jews really don't want to go into. They go around it rather than through it. So it's removed, as it were. Beyond that, agriculturally, Galilee was very, very different than Judea. Galilee was agriculturally productive. Judea was not. The very sophisticated Judeans, they considered the farmers, herdsmen, fishermen of Galilee to be very unsophisticated, uncultured, unrefined types of people. They were below their social class. It was kind of like the, the residents of New York City, the way they think and talk about people who live in Kentucky, right? There's a sense that, that those who live in the rural agricultural areas are beneath us, below us. They don't measure up to our sophistication. And so there was this, there was this divergence between the south and the north. Beyond that, there was a, a religious difference between Judea and Galilee. Interestingly, Galilee had more Jews than Judea. More Jews lived in Galilee at that time than lived in Judea, and Jesus had been sent to minister to who? To the Jews. So to minister to the Jews, you need to go where the Jews are, and the Jews reside predominantly in Galilee at this time. Beyond that... Galilee also had a very large Gentile population. So it's the, it's the largest Jewish area, but it also has a large Gentile contingent living in close proximity to the Jewish people there. The result of this close living arrangement is that the Galileans were not as rigorous in their keeping of the, of the laws, of the ceremonial laws of Moses and the traditions of the elders. They were, they were a little more loose in how some of these things were handled, these, these religious observances. The result of that was, of course, is that the Judeans thought the Galileans were impious, that they were, that they were not only backwards, but they were kind of one-off religiously. They didn't measure up to the purity of the southern Jew. So you've got all of this going on that, that, that really keeps these two sections of the nation further apart. There's more. When Jesus withdrew from Judea and moved into Galilee in the north, he came out from under the, the oversight, the purview of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly ruling class, and their power base lay in Jerusalem and the temple. 
Jesus, as we said, had already infuriated them by, by his cleansing of the temple. So by moving away from them, he kind of gets out from under their oversight. He retreats to the north. It's more remote. He can move around. There's, there the, those in the south don't really like to go up into the north anyway. And so he moves around pretty much unhindered for the next 18 months in Galilee as an itinerant preacher. The other thing that's interesting to note is that the countryside was the purview, was the domain of the Pharisees. That was their religious territory. That was their place of power. And so Jesus, you've got to see this. This is, this is so amazing. He, he basically plays one side off against the other. And that is he, he completely infuriates and, and uh, enrages the, the political class in Jerusalem, and then he leaves. And for the next 18 months, he's moving around in the north, and he's really getting under the skin of the Pharisees. He's continually confronting them and, and calling them out for their hypocritical way of approaching God. But he's constantly moving. And so the Sadducees, they're kind of thinking, well, when he cleanses the temple, the Pharisees are really happy that he stuck it to the Sadducees, right? And so then he goes north, and now he's infuriating the Pharisees, and the Sadducees in the south are thinking, good, give it to them. They deserve it. And so he's back and forth playing one side against the other, and in the process he's staying one step ahead of the hangman. We might say it this way. Jesus was wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And as he managed his public ministry, he managed it in this way so that he could have the maximum exposure, preach a confrontational message against and to the nation, and yet they don't manage to get their hands on him and kill him, even though they want to for three and a half years. Not until he says, right, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it up again. He will not die before his time. So we withdrew into Galilee, verse 12. Verse 13, after leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. When Jesus originally returns to Galilee... He heads back to his hometown of Nazareth. The problem is that he had a real bad experience when he does that. He has a bad experience when he goes back to Nazareth. The bad experience is they try to throw him off a cliff. Okay, Luke narrates that for us in Luke chapter 4. And so they try to throw him off a cliff and he leaves Nazareth. Luke tells us he goes to Capernaum. Matthew picks it up here. He just doesn't bother with talking about the cliff incident. So he moves to Capernaum. No prophet is without honor except in his where? His own hometown. And so he cannot stay in Nazareth. He has to move. And so he moves his base of operations to the fishing town of Capernaum. Capernaum. Capernaum is located on the northwest shore of what we call the Sea of Galilee. Actually, the Lake of Galilee. It is a freshwater body. Capernaum is a very interesting place. Nazareth is sort of set aside. It's kind of a podunk place. Capernaum is more of a happening kind of place. They tell us that at this time, the population of Capernaum was probably ten to 15,000 people. So it was a pretty decent-sized fishing community. We know that it was, that it was a thriving place because there was a, a Roman centurion there. 
And if there's a centurion, then there are Roman troops for him to command. And so Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5 indicates to us the presence of the Roman centurion. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9 tells us there was a tax office in Capernaum. The Romans would only put a tax office if it could collect what? Taxes. And you collect taxes from people who make money, right? The more money they make, the more we take. And so the Romans put a tax office there in Capernaum, indicating this is a very prosperous community. It's located, as it says here, at the end of verse 13, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. That is, it's located on the ancient border between the two tribal lands of Naphtali and Zebulun. That's where it's located. So there are many, many reasons for, for Jesus to leave Judea and to settle in Capernaum. Many reasons. But Matthew doesn't cite any of them. Matthew instead focuses on an ancient prophecy. Pick it up, verse 14. This, what this? The, the movement into Galilee and then the establishment of his base of operations at Capernaum, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Matthew focuses upon the fulfillment of prophecy. For Matthew, the movement is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, it's important to note that Matthew doesn't say he moved there in order to fulfill the prophecy. What Matthew says is his movement there fulfills the prophecy. The movement fulfills the prophecy. And what that does is that indicates for us that Matthew sees in the movement of Christ the sovereign and providential hand of God moving Jesus exactly where he needs to be in order to fulfill that which was written. A prophecy given 750 years earlier. The prophet Isaiah spoke to the nation 750 years earlier than that, and he spoke about the dark days of the Assyrian invasion. And he promised to the nation a future deliverer, a brighter time. And he gave it to them in that very famous Christmas prophecy, right? We see it on Christmas cards all the time, Matthew 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Matthew says the movement of Christ to Capernaum fulfills that great prophecy. The promised one, the Messiah, has come. The deliverer. The one who will establish the throne of David and bring peace and justice and prosperity to the nation has arrived. Galilee lies under Roman oppression. When the prophecy was given, it lay under the oppression of the Assyrians. Now it lies under Roman oppression. But more significantly even than that, it lies under the, under the oppression of a spiritual darkness and death. 
Look at verse 16. People who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. To those who were sitting in the land of death. The land and shadow of death. These people were cut off from God. They're they're darkened in their understanding. They need the, the light of Messiah. And so God brings to them the light in the person of Jesus Christ himself. He sets up his base of operations right there in Capernaum. How will they respond? How will they respond? Well, if you're familiar with the Gospels at all, you know the answer to that, don't you? Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Capernaum. It's a sad, sad story of the hardness of heart. His movement the first facet. Second facet, his message. His message. His message required obedience. His movement fulfilled Scripture. His message required obedience. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where have I heard that before? That's the exact message of the forerunner, right? It's the message of John the Baptist. Jesus, when John is arrested, Jesus picks up the preaching message and he delivers the exact same message to the nation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What kingdom? His kingdom. His kingdom is at hand. And the entrance into this kingdom comes only through repentance. We've said it once, we're going to say it a million times. Messiah's kingdom is an earthly kingdom entered through a spiritual door. And it is entered through the door of repentance and faith in the Messiah himself. One must be born again to enter into into the Messiah's kingdom. One must be redeemed. One must be born from above. One enters in through conversion. But someday, when the kingdom is established here on earth, those who are redeemed, will enter into Messiah's kingdom. Now notice, verse 17, if the kingdom is close, there's an urgency to the matter, isn't there? If the kingdom is really close, there's an urgency. And and I would suggest the kingdom's even closer now. And the the preaching of John the Baptist, it was, repent, the kingdom's really, really close because see that guy over there? I'm going to baptize him really soon. And, And that's the one. And now John's off the scene and it's the king himself. He's like right there in front of them. And he says to them, listen, you have got to repent. There is an urgency to this. You cannot be complacent in this matter. The king is standing there. He is he's standing at the door. My friends, there is, there is still an urgency to that message. The scriptures tell us that that Christ is standing right at the door. The judge is at the door, James says. There is a a sense in which Christ, he could return at any moment, and, and thus we must be ready. This message is absolutely applicable to you and I today. Jesus can return now. Amen? Amen. And when he comes... The curtain drops, the door closes. The offer of salvation through grace has been slammed shut. There is an urgency to this message, both then and now. It is a message that requires obedience. Third facet, his mandate. His movement, his message, his mandate. 
verses 18 to 22. His mandate produced action. His mandate produced action. Verse 18, by walking, walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the boat and their father and followed him. His mandate produced action, didn't it? Now, Matthew doesn't bother to include the fact that that three of these four men had already been introduced to Jesus and had already followed him at some level and for some time. They were there at the wedding in Cana. John tells us that in John's Gospel, John chapter 2 and beginning in verse 35. James is the only one of the four here that hadn't previously had exposure to Christ. But Matthew, rather than than focusing on that, he focuses on something else for us here. And what he focuses on is is Jesus' unconditional, unexplained demand for these men to follow him. Now, when we speak in our culture about following Jesus, and when he speaks about following me, there's a difference. He meant, I want you to literally follow me around. Where I go, you go. Where I sit, you sit. Where I sleep, you sleep. What I eat, you eat. And that's exactly what happens. These men begin to follow him around. Now, this is not a polite invitation, is it? He doesn't say, you know, any of you, maybe, you know, you're not busy next week. Would you maybe kind of be interested in going with me for a day or two? I'm going to do a little preaching. That's not what he says at all, right? He walks up to them and he says, you and you and you and you, follow me. Where are we going? I'll tell you later. I'll tell you later. Drop the net, get out of the boat, leave your father's fishing business behind and follow me. The other thing that's interesting here is that culturally, people chose the rabbi. The disciple chooses the rabbi that they want to follow. He looks spiritual. I'm going to follow him. Jesus turns it on its head. They don't choose him. He chooses them. He picks them. And he says, follow me. And immediately they respond, and and I might say sacrificially they respond. you see it? Sacrificially they respond. They leave their jobs. They leave their jobs, and they begin to follow him. He doesn't say, listen, I'm going to be gone here just a little while. He just says, follow me. He was gone for for quite a long time, actually, on this journey. Follow me. They follow him. Now, Matthew includes this for us here, I think, because it's important for us to, to recognize that this is, a, this is a book about making disciples. Right? It ends in Matthew 28 with the Great Commission, which says, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Make followers of Jesus Christ. And so right here, up front, here it is, follow me. So the book begins this way, it ends this way. These guys walked away from their houses. They walked away from their families. 
They walked away from their livelihoods. All to follow Jesus and assist him in his evangelistic crusade, his preaching ministry. By the time we reach Matthew chapter 19 and verse 27, they say, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? We have left everything. But it is interesting, when you you read the Scriptures carefully, they did leave everything in one sense, but, but they also retained some things. For example, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 14, Peter still owns a house. He still owned a house. He also owned a fishing boat. He uses it several times later. So it's not like they, they completely gave up all worldly possessions to follow him. That's my point. They did retain, Peter at least retains a home, wife, fishing boat, so forth. Now ultimately these men go to their death, don't they? These men die a martyr's death, all except John. As I was thinking about that this week, I, I thought, you know, there are kind of levels of discipleship. There, the, the call to discipleship goes out to everyone, but there are, there are kind of levels of discipleship. Let me just take a minute or two and try to unpack that with you a little bit. There is a general call to, to discipleship that's, that we can detect in the Gospels, and, and it's a call to, to accept, to receive Jesus as Messiah and Lord. For example, chapter 7, verse 24. Seven twenty-four. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. There is a call here to hear his words and to act upon them. That is, to believe upon Him as Messiah and Lord. To to give your life to Him as your Messiah, as your Lord. Now that necessarily means there will be a change of allegiances. A change of allegiances. There will be a a change of priorities. There will be a a change of commitments. And and even a change of direction in a person's life. So that call, that general call of discipleship which, by the way, I believe is the Matthew 28, 19, and 20 call, goes out to all people. And it is to, it is to follow Jesus Christ, which will necessarily rearrange your life. Because prior to Christ, you're, you're laboring under the delusion that you are master of your own destiny. And when you come to Jesus Christ, what you realize is that you are now a slave. And you have absolutely no rights in fact, you only have responsibilities or obligations, and those obligations are to serve other people as Christ has served you. So it necessarily changes things. There's no such thing as a disciple of Jesus Christ whose life does not change. It's the essence of conversion. But there is beyond that at least what I can discern as two other calls of discipleship. There's another call, and that is to, to assist him in his ministry. Assist him in his ministry. And that's really what we're seeing here in, in John, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 18, chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. It is the call to leave your business behind and to follow around with Messiah to the advancement of his ministry. 
It's more than just to, to bow your knee before him and to receive him as your Savior and your Lord. Jesus did not want every single living soul in Galilee to quit their job and follow him around. You understand that, right? He wanted every single soul in Galilee to humble their heart before him and by faith embrace him as Messiah, yes, which would necessarily change the direction of their life. But there were a few who were called to a greater level of sacrifice. That greater level of sacrifice spoken of here is to leave your business behind, leave your family behind, and to become engaged full-time in the ministry. Be engaged in the ministry. And, and in fact, that's what I think we see in kind of in a modern setting. There is, a, there is another call to, to discipleship that, that's akin to a person's call to full-time or part-time ministry. That is to leave your career, leave behind the, the way you're earning your bread and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ cross-culturally or, or domestically, but it's a complete reorganization of your life and your responsibilities. The sacrifice required is greater than the sacrifice required in the first and general call. We're sending our brother and his family, Lord willing, to Argentina. The sacrifice required to go to Argentina is of a greater level than the general call of discipleship. Now that does not make them any closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It does not make them any holier in the eyes of God. It is God's sovereign hand upon their life that calls them forth into ministry. But it's absolutely a call to discipleship. There is a third call to discipleship that I detect in the, in the Gospels, and, and that is the call to, res, to represent Jesus as an apostle. To represent Jesus as an apostle. You can see it over here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Just turn over there real quick. You don't have to worry about this one because the apostles are all dead and this call has ended. Okay, so don't get nervous. But just to be symmetrical with three parts, let me show it to you. So chapter 10, verse 1, he summoned his 12 disciples, okay, and Luke says he calls them apostles, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of, a, of sickness. And the names of the 12 apostles are these, and spells it out. So it was a call to, to actually represent him, not just assist him, but represent him. And he, he empowered them with the ability not just to preach the message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but to do kingdom miracles. These are the apostles. The apostles all died out in the first century. When they died out, they didn't give birth to little baby apostles. Okay, When they left, they're all gone. So don't worry, no calls to, to, to apostleship. But there, are the, there is the general call to discipleship, and there is a specific call to discipleship in terms of full-time service even today. That takes us to the fourth facet. The fourth facet. We have his ministry, or his movement rather, we have his message, we have his mandate, and then we have his, his ministry. His ministry. The ministry of Jesus generated enthusiasm. This is the fourth facet of his resume. His movement his message, his mandate, and now his ministry. And notice again why 
I believe that, that the resume metaphor works here. Verses 23 to 25. Notice how Matthew sums up this rather extensive campaign. And he does it with three words. He does it with three words. They're there in verse 23. See if you can find them as I read. Verse 23, And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. His Galilean ministry is characterized in in basically three words. Verse 23, teaching, preaching, healing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Look again at verse 23. He's going about in all Galilee... Teaching in their synagogues. Teaching in their synagogues. The synagogue was was the place where the people would come together to worship. It was a place to come together and worship, a place to come together and study the law of God. That we were required to go to the temple only a couple of times a year, really three, for, for these feasts. But the rest of the time, they would meet regularly on the Sabbath in the local synagogue, and they would meet to worship and they would meet to be instructed out of the law of God. The synagogue was the center of Jewish community life. As a Jewish man, Jesus would be invited to teach in these synagogues. And so that's exactly what he did. He moved about the countryside, and when it was Sabbath and it was time to be in a synagogue, he would be in the synagogue. And being a a foreign guest, as it were, it would not be uncommon at all for them to ask him to teach. Brother, share something from the Word of God with us. And so he would do just that, teaching in their synagogues. Secondly, his ministry is characterized by preaching. Now, the New American Standard calls it proclaiming, but, but the word keruso in the, in the Greek means to preach. So he is preaching. And what is he preaching? Take a look at it. Verse 23, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Gospel means good news. He is preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom. He's engaged in a, in a preaching ministry. That means it's, a, it's not systematic instruction. It's just proclamation. It's just spilling out truths in public settings. Setting forth the truth of the Word of God about himself and the kingdom of God, regardless of whether people receive it or don't receive it. He's preaching. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. So he's teaching and he's preaching. And Matthew is also very clear to tell us he is healing. He is healing. And he is healing comprehensively. He is healing comprehensively. He is engaged in, a, in an extensive and intensive healing ministry. Take a look at the language. He's healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Not just a few things. He doesn't specialize in hangnails and bad backs. Okay? He heals everything. And he goes on, just in case you missed that. Right? 
Various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, which means those are the moonstruck, we would call that lunatics. Okay, that's how that word kind of works. Paralytics, he healed them all. He healed them all. And did he heal them under controlled circumstances? Not at all. It says they were coming to him from all over the place, right? And he is healing them. He is healing them. In fact, one commentator, B.B. Warfield, and I agree with him on this, he said Jesus effectively banished disease from Galilee for more than a year. He effectively banished disease from Galilee for more than a year. Now, why would Warfield say that? It's because Warfield understands human nature. How far would you go to get healed? If there was someone who healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, and you're sick, you're diseased, how far would you go to get healed? How far would you go to bring your child to be healed? Or your parent, or your sibling, or your friend? Right? That's why it says, verse 25, from all over the place, not just Galilee, but, but beyond that, it's reached down into, into Jerusalem in the south, and it's, and it's reached out to the Decapolis, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. Judea, they're pouring in to be healed. Pouring in. These are not, these are not controlled little healing ministries done with television cameras and, and controlled circumstances. These are wide open. These are public. These are, these are the healing of organic diseases. This is, this is people with missing limbs having them restored. This is people who are demon-possessed having them cast out. This is people who have all kinds of, of, of mental diseases that are, that are resolved. Extensive. Intensive healing ministry. Why? Why? Well, we can start with a simple answer. Our God is a God of compassion. Amen? I think we could start with that very simple answer. Our God is a God of compassion. Ultimately, sin, disease, deformity, the result of sin, the fall of man. They're not necessarily the result of an individual's sin, although they can be. But they are certainly the result of sin in this world. So if Jesus is the one to conquer sin, then he must be the one to conquer the symptoms of sin, which is disease. But it goes beyond that. They are are miracles of attestation. They accredit him as a spokesman of God. That's exactly what Nicodemus says in John chapter 3 and verse 2. We know you come from God because no one could do the things that you do unless God was with him. There is accreditation that he's a spokesman for God. But it goes even beyond that. They They are a glimpse into the age to come. They were a glimpse into the age to come. The, the prophets spoke of that future glorious age, Messiah's kingdom, in which disease and deformity and illness would be no more, in which Satan would be bound and would no longer torment mankind. 
If the kingdom of God is really close at hand in the person of the king, then it's only logical that we ought to get a little glimpse of what it's going to look like. And that's exactly what we get. He, he, he kind of peeks the door open just a little bit so that you can look in. Or maybe I should better say so that the age to come can, can penetrate into our age. And it happens with this, this comprehensive healing ministry. He banished disease from Galilee for 18 months. His movement, his message, his mandate, his ministry. All of these things Matthew touches on. And he's, he's setting the stage. He's, he's setting the table. He's, he's getting us ready for chapter 5. So you've got to come back next week. Because next week, we will begin, Lord willing, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm convinced it is absolutely going to transform us. Do you know that it is the longest recorded sermon of Jesus anywhere in the Bible? We want to know what his preaching was like. We want to know what his teaching was like. It's given to us in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Cancel your vacations and don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. Father, I feel like we just kind of rushed through this a little bit, but, but Lord, it's okay. It's okay because it really sets us the stage for us to, to begin to delve into the Sermon on the Mount. And, and Lord, by your grace, we're going to go through that with some, some care and some detail. Lord, we'll, we'll swing back to, as your scriptures do, back to the, to the Galilean campaigns as, as Matthew picks it up in chapters 8, 9, and 10. So, Lord, we, uh, we just ask this morning that your spirit would cause, would cause your word to lodge in our hearts. Give us a glimpse of, of Jesus, the crucified and resurrected one, the Messiah, the King. Encourage our hearts where we are weak, doubting. Convict us where we are trapped in sin and rebellion. Draw those who do not know Christ to a saving knowledge of Him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, my friends.